I said in Space Bites that we had a lot of questions about the Starship launch, but we didn't have a lot of answers. And so I was able to reach out to a couple of YouTube experts who specialize in spaceflight and SpaceX things. I got a chance to talk with Scott Manley and Marcus House. So during this conversation, we talk about all of the events that led up to the launch of Starship what kind of damage was done to the launch facility and what it's going to take to repair it? What happened during the flight itself? And what does the future hold? How long are we probably going to be expecting to wait for the next Starship launch attempt? So enjoy the conversation with me, Scott Manley and Marcus House. Marcus, can you give us sort of the uh, sort of the history of leading up to this launch, the short version? I mean, everybody's pretty familiar with it, but but sort of what brought us to What's it? Wednesday? Thursday. 420, right? Yeah, to this launch. Yeah, like, it was Thursday. It, it, it's kind of been, you know, it's, it's sort of really been two years of, of waiting and, and uh, trying to get a good understanding of when this whole event would happen. And it's, you know, although it may have seemed slower than everybody would have liked, it's, uh, it's one of those things where when the big event did happen, it was almost too hard to believe that it was actually flying. And... Um, actually, I think Scott probably said it best as um, one of the tweets I think that you put out where it's like, you know, I'll be amazed if all the engines fire up and they actually let it go. And I was exactly the same. I was like, the fact that they they fired up all 33 engines, presumably, I don't know if three failed initially right from the pad or whether they failed in the first 10 seconds, I think that's still unclear. But, you know, that, that to me uh, was just one of the most strangest scenes to see that actually lift off. And of course the the plume and the and the concrete flying and all this sort of stuff. But in the lead up to that, you know, we had the Starship flights, uh, the flight test two years ago. The last one was in May two years ago, so, so it had almost been two years, and uh, it's just been this huge development of the Stage Zero system, this system that is kind of unprecedented in terms of uh, of the. Um, robotics of, of uh, Mechazilla, all this kind of stuff. So it's been astounding. But the, the question in my mind, and many everybody's mind really, has has been for a long time, will the pad actually hold up based on there not being a flame diverter, not being a proper water deluge system, all this kind of thing? That's That's been the big question. And, of course, that question was pretty much answered uh, the other day. So, yeah, I don't know. What, resounding uh, no. no. Now, Scott, <laughs> you quite rapidly identified the problem. I was watching on Twitter, and you sort of called back to a tweet that Elon Musk had made a couple of years ago saying that it might make a good idea to install a flame diverter. Not sure. This could be a bad idea and haunt me in the future. And you then quote tweeted that. Pointing and out said, that guess yes, what? Actually, we needed it because yeah, the on launch we had an RUD, rapid unscheduled digging. Yeah, uh, it, it did not have a flame trench, so it dug its own. Yeah, and right, unfortunately, right. all that debris ended up flying everywhere. Uh, in particularly, it flew to towards some of the ground service equipment. It flew uh, through the cameras that were set up. Yeah, <laughs> it, it yeah, ended NASA up getting space flight's van just got smashed. <laughs> You know, the van will cost a whole lot less than the cameras attached to it. Mm. I'm not That's, surprised uh, by that. Yeah, it's wild. It's a big setup. Yeah. So what, what, I guess, what was the scale? Like, how much damage was done 
to the to the launch complex. Well, given the size of the hole that was dug out, that's easily hundreds of tons of rock being thrown around. Yeah, yeah, like, uh, and everything. I don't think anything escaped damage. Now the real question is, did any of that debris impinge on the oh, pardon me on the spacecraft and uh, you know interfere with its ability to fly and that's not been answered. I think it might well be yes, because we had two engines next to each other that were out. <clears throat> yeah. And that implies a common cause, but it's not a guarantee. Yeah. Yeah, I think that you've got those two Raptor Boost engines on the side that went out, you know, it seems to be reasonably certain, I think, that something might have hit both of them, as you say. Um, it would be really great if we could get a bit of information on when those three first engines went out <laughs> it would give us a right, lot of good exactly hints. they uh, were yes. off right from the from what appeared to be the launch right like on the, the moment, graphic the moment we they saw, actually showed right? them yeah right yeah. so the earliest photos we have show at least two engines out one in the center and one on the side and that could possibly be three and then the first moment they showed us the telemetry page they showed three engines out yeah uh, in the earlier shot, you can see uh, the one that SpaceX tweeted that shows the rocket moving past. You can see that engines are out there. I, re- I almost think that they were probably out within that first 10 seconds of firing up, but it's it's really hard to say until we get a definite on it. Um, and there's been no that- official announcement at all? Not on that particular point, I don't think. Yeah, uh, not that we've seen. I have been told that they could lose something like two engines and still fly, like mm-hmm. and still commit to a launch. Because they were designed with uh, some margin in there, but that I'm not sure if what the status of that information is because mm, mm. things I get told <laughs> are not necessarily public information. Yeah, yeah, right. and right. Um, I mean one of the questions I suppose that I don't know if we really had answered was there any sort of mass simulator on board in terms of payload, um, anything like that? And I don't think there was. Uh, you know, as far as I've seen, there's been a couple of images. That were grabbed from like cameras uh, showing scenes from within the uh, launch control, um, and by the looks of it, there was really nothing much inside those fairings from some of the shots we've been able to sort of tweak yeah. and see. Um, I mean, they, so I they, rich, they had sealed empty. that up, mm. right? Yeah, they yeah. did have the mail slot for a while, and then they sealed yeah. that up. Yeah, I was just wondering if maybe they'd popped in some sort of mass simulator at some point, but I don't think they did. So it was pretty much empty. They would have had plenty of margin, I would think, um, to lose some engines, as you say. Uh, Certainly no paying payload on this first flight, which yeah. is good practice. Yeah, yeah. But I think the 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 thing that really caught everybody's attention was some of the shots of uh, the concrete landing in the ocean. You just saw the ocean just light up with just splashes and, you know, quite big ones, very large yeah. masses. They were large objects. enough to show, like, yeah. on a low-quality stream taken from a drone. Yeah, yeah. And I did the math on the – they had to move, like, 500 metres or something to get to the ocean. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, and so based on that – Worst case, or the slowest speed they could have been projected at was something like 70, 160 miles an hour, yeah. 70 meters per second. Yeah, yeah. And there was just uh, some colossal like, chunks on the beach too. Yeah. Um, I know there was one there shared, it was one of the NASA space flight shots that was hat for scale. And it's like this huge yeah. chunk of concrete. That was an amazing yeah, I saw shot. saw somebody standing on it. <laughs> there was pieces raining down, what, six miles away in the town everyone's houses were covered in dirt uh and as you said pieces off it yeah yeah we saw some pretty dramatic those dramatic images of of people's cars being yeah 
I mean, a lot of that was just carried by the wind, right? The wind right. was blowing in that direction. Yeah. But what about the damage to the complex itself? I mean, like all of those tanks, all of those other starships, like they were all just around. Yeah, yeah well, it's, it's definitely the tanks. that. Um, especially those big vertical tanks, they took a beating, uh, uh, two or three of them especially. One of them was sort of a water tank that I don't know how much it was being used anyway, so I don't know how much that's going to be a problem. You know, there was other shots of the... Um, Orbital launch mount, certain areas of it that had just been peppered. It looked like somebody had taken a gigantic shotgun to it. Um, it was it was crazy the damage around that that pad, especially anything in direct line of sight. So, um, you know, Musk was very quick to come out on Twitter and say, "Oh yeah, we'll have this cleaned up and ready to fly again in one and two months," which is which was comical. <laughs> um, it, it, it may well be, but uh, the FAA is going to be looking in because they yeah. had you know the, mostly because of the small amounts of debris that landed on. Uh, you know, if yeah, point Port Isabel, yeah, yeah, so yeah, they're not going to want to see FAA, that happen again, right? The FAA basically granted the license with the understanding that the thing just might explode in a giant fireball in the pad. They weren't concerned about damage to the launch site, but they are concerned about debris potentially landing outside the exclusion zones, and so this is. Galt ultimately going to require FAA to do like an investigation, say, was the launch license granted in haste? Um, and, you know, that's, that's going to be a question they have to answer. And I suspect that SpaceX just has to say, well, we're going to build a better stage zero. Yeah, right. yeah. Now, and, we talked uh, about yeah. the, the damage to phase zero. So what about post-launch? Like, when it took off, we saw that three of the rocket engines were down within... The first couple of minutes, two more went offline, uh, and then the rocket started to do all kinds of stuff. So what was it supposed to do? Because because I know they were planning a flip maneuver yeah. to detach the the booster from the Starship, and what we saw was a, like a 1080 flip, which I don't yeah. think is the maneuver they were planning. Yeah, they, it was supposed to do this at 64 kilometers up. Instead, it began its rotation at about 31 kilometers. So they weren't even halfway to their target altitude. And what this was, was the vehicle basically lost control. And I suspect the reason it lost control was uh, due to loss of uh, thrust vectoring, probably related to at least one explosion we saw that was close to one of the hydraulic power units. So Starship is aerodynamically unstable. It has all its aerodynamic control surfaces at the front. That means the center of pressure is at the front. Imagine you have an arrow and you put the flights, the fins at the front. It's going to want to flip around. Same thing is true on rockets that have their control surfaces up there. And that's fine because if you keep it going straight, you can keep it stable. But as soon as it begins to move out of that regime, it's going to want to flip around typically. Now we don't, you know, this is me hypothesizing based on, you know, my math, you know, here's my, <laughs> like, figuring out the center of mass of Starship and the angular momentum that we can input into it. Yeah, yeah. And the thing, of course, is as it empties out, that gets worse. That problem gets worse that, because your booster is, is mm. um, oh, actually gets better. It gets better uh, in terms of the actual It gets control. better because you're moving, the, you're draining the fuel from the back off and moving the center of mass forwards. So that actually the, uh, helps. The uh, the HPUs that sort of it, it it did look very much like that exploded you know roughly you know yeah. thirty seconds in or something one at thirty like that. seconds and there's possibly the other one like around fifty seconds 
and they they still seem to have these pretty good um, pretty good trajectory considering. If they lost all con- all gimbal control at that point, um, I well, wonder I how much they, they were able to do like thrust vector type stuff. Right. So hydraulic <clears throat> power units, what they're doing is they're basically pressurizing the hydraulic system. They're putting uh, pressurized fluid, fluid fluid into the reservoir, and then as the thrust vectoring works, it's draining this pressurized reservoir. So if you lose both your HPUs, depending on the design of the system, you could still have totally working thrust vectoring, but it would be have a limited lifespan. And yeah, there are yeah. your early uh, Falcon 9s, the grid fins, used uh, uh, like a open cycle hydraulic system. And there was one case where it just ran out of uh, hydraulic fluid to work the fins. And so they added in an HPU to make this work. So it's possible that these things were had enough steering and control authority to keep it straight. And then I, they got through max Q. And that's an important part for this argument because... Max Q is the point where you've got maximum aerodynamic forces. So that is the point where, if anything, the thrust vectoring was going to be overwhelmed by the aerodynamic forces. And it got through that just fine. Yeah, yeah. I, it was a huge breakthrough, that part. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, it's a it's where your stresses are going to be highest. Although when it was called out isn't necessarily when it happened. It's not clear if the call out we heard was yeah. when it was pl- supposed to happen or when it happened on this flight because they had lower thrust and therefore they weren't going as fast. So things It's almost just a little different. hard to tell because, you know, they've got a script that they're sticking to based on a plan yeah. that goes to plan. Um, and then right. they're kind and of... we saw that script twice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> like, it was funny to watch the second version of it on the Thursday after the Monday and they were following the exact same script. Yeah, yeah, very close. up to it. Yeah, these are smart people that uh, are probably really wanting to speculate and can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like I could not present an official rocket launch stream because if anything went wrong, I would immediately be speculating, and they don't want that. Yeah, right, right, yeah. right. I mean, the, the actual yeah. plume itself on the way up. Um, it seemed looked fuel rich. Well, yeah, it certainly did. <laughs> it looked um, engine rich. It looked engine so rich, yeah. You I was going to say <laughs> engine rich, and then you had uh, the locks starting to dump quite rapidly com- in comparison to the to the methane. That was that was interesting too. I suspect they were probably trying to dump mass really quick to see if they could get it as uh, up there as fast uh, as they can. But it's hard. To I say. think that was just the attitude was changing, and their sensors weren't reading it. I think their sensors are probably designed for straight up and down. And they were taking an angle to the stream at that point. And I think that is just, we have to, you know, we're speculating here, but I think that is it yeah, trying yeah. to maintain its intended trajectory and it's taking a slightly different one. So that could actually affect their oxygen readings. Because if you think about it, this is a nine meter wide tank. How do you yeah. put sensors on something that size? Yeah. It's yeah. not a trivial problem to solve. <clears throat> Especially as soon as it starts rotating, like then the sensors are almost right. useless at that point. And so point, at that point, uh, all bets are off. And so, yeah, it begins this lazy rotation, and, and that was not the flip maneuver because the flip maneuver would be faster. I, I, I did the math. I know how fast they should be able to rotate this thing, and yeah, yeah. they they should have spun that up faster if they were going to do the flip, and it didn't happen. It was more like a sort of lazy departure yeah. into this rotation. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I'm still thinking HPU failure, unintended flip, uh, you know, loss of thr- gimbling, and then the real question is. From that point, why did it take so long to actually explode? 
Yeah, yeah. Or, um, it, it, it's really interesting that point because if if it's you know I've been we've all been reading a lot of stuff this week and watching a lot of things, but um, you know one of the theories out there is that the the um, flight termination system just punches a few holes in the in the tanks to depressurize it and have the oxygen methane perhaps mixing together to hasten the process um, rather yep. than actually just and have an immediate explosion. And that's that's an interesting point because you do see the the venting sort of start quite early from when it actually and expired. And so, yeah. mm, mm. Now, do we know why they didn't detach Starship? Like, Starship had fuel on board. It could have been... It could have... They, they could have demonstrated their abort system. Any reason you think why they didn't do that? It was probably too early in the process, right? There's a whole bunch of requirements that were probably built into the staging system that said you have to be close to this altitude and this attitude, and those were not satisfied. Yeah, they lost. It's really speculative at that, that point. Um, it's just hard. Like to it's know. not like Kerbal Space Program where you can just hit the space bar and <laughs> and just go for it. Uh, I would be great if it was. I'm calling an audible. We're gonna separate now. I think to a degree they're still even even though even though they had sort of said that they'd shut down the engines, there was still exhaust going on, so there still would have been sort of a net force pushing against the second stage. Yeah. So maybe they just couldn't physically separate it because it's being pushed against uh, all if that they time. Had more than, yeah, if they had more than one engine running, they, uh, even at the minimum fuel levels expected, they weren't going to separate that thing, even if the engines yeah. lit right away, which would be spectacular. Yeah, but in yeah. theory, it can go to space. Like in theory, Starship on its own, a fully fueled Starship can almost make it to orbit. Only from <laughs> Mars. <laughs> We're not on Mars. But, but with a certain amount of velocity. Like I'm just I am I am pretty surprised that they weren't able to like they could they they could tell that it was not going well the moment they saw three engines were not functioning. So and if I'm you remember CRS seven? Um sorry, that was a, a NASA launch and it failed and you know the dragon capsule fell off and splashed into the ocean and was destroyed and they pointed out you know if they had a, the, a method to actually make it deploy the parachute they could have recovered the payloads and everything but they didn't have that because this thing was so scripted and i'm pretty sure that this is scripted in the same way they had very rigid steps that they had to cross through before the next thing was allowed to happen and that's partly design partly safety you know you want something that's predictable and i think this was too far outside the envelope for them to actually do that yeah, yeah. look there's some other rumors as well again it's all very speculative so i don't like saying too much unless there's some <laughs> reasonable evidence behind it but this is purely speculative i think in that some of the hydraulic uh systems with the hpus may have been linked up to the detachment systems and things as well it's it's really hard to say whether that has any sort of impact on that particular part of the flight. Even if the latches had been opened, though, the engines were still firing, it would still That's be right. stuck to the front of that rocket. That, that, it'd still, like, unless they could just fire up the engines on the second stage and do like a like a um, hard ignition <laughs> still attached, they didn't seem to attempt Again, to do that. that would be spectacular. <laughs> all those be. engines firing into the booster. Yeah, yeah. So if, what's the like, fix? At that point, it would have been uh, almost worth a try. <laughs> yeah. Well, the fix. So first of all, the fix is... Stage zero needs Stage fixed, zero, yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. They're going to look through their telemetry. They're going to figure out these engines failed, and we're pretty sure it's because of debris impacts. 
you know, this failed, possibly debris. All those things can be eliminated by fixing stage zero. Then there'll be a bunch of other telemetry that says, uh, it looks like this uh, turbo pump, you know, failed or we had a leak here. We may have caused an engine fire. They're going to have to go through their fault tree, you know, do the root cause analysis and find out what caused each of these and come up with processes to address all of them. Yeah. Interestingly, uh, the um, HPU systems, the pressure units that, that exploded uh, in the next booster, Booster 9, they're actually all, it's all electric driven systems now for thrust vector control for that. So at least that part shouldn't be a, a well, it could fail in a different way, of course, but it shouldn't be the same issue. Um, you know, it depends. That that may have also been uh, impacted by debris, which caused those to fail. We don't know. They may have failed anyway. Um, right. But, but the really fix, sure. I guess the question is, what is the fix for not carving out a gigantic crater underneath your launch oh. tower every time you launch? Well, they're going to try the cooled big steel plate. I mean, the physics of the situation is that they fired these engines at half power into the flat concrete and it was fine. But as soon as it finds a tiny crack, it will just amplify that crack. The gases are going to go in, they'll sneak under, they'll lift the whole thing up and it's just going to get worse. And yeah, yeah. if you can seal that surface with a big steel plate, that might do it. But if there's a crack that forms or they burn a hole in it, then it's going to lift up and fly around just like this, the same thing before. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing they can do is put an actual, like a spike flame diverter that'll actually push the stuff sideways and mean that it's not coming down at 90 degrees. They can add water suppression systems that will reduce things. So water suppression systems used on other rockets are primarily there to protect the rocket. But of course, <laughs> SpaceX, uh, they decided, let's build this out of stainless steel. Let's take the kind of people that build water towers <laughs> and make them build a rocket. This thing will be like stainless steel, super tough. It doesn't need those sound suppression systems. Maybe they don't, but yeah, right. they, that doesn't suppress the concrete and stuff <laughs> flying around. Now, I think what Marcus, I'm interested with, in with is... With Boca Chica, um, they're at sea level. So they don't have a lot of room to go down into the ground. They're going to have to build up. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. the water table fact, is kind of right there. And it's so that's really difficult. Um but and they also you know, need permits to do that. That's right, and <laughs> right. and there probably that's would have been, been the real some, problem. They probably needed the uh, you know the the environmental um, assessments and stuff to um, go around all these new factors if they were to add that. Um, the other thing that's interesting about Musk's idea, well, he tweeted out it's fairly so shortly after the launch that they plan on having this uh, water cooled steel plate system that's going to be installed. They've already started working on it three months ago, but they thought ah. We'll give it. We think it'll hold up. Well, it didn't hold up. So I mean, that's already in progress. There's parts for it down that we've been looking at. Uh, thanks to the yeah, thanks to the great shots from um, RGV aerial photography RGV. and whatnot. Um, it's really useful to have those views. But I'm still not sure. Like, it's a bit hard to tell how it goes together or whether there's angles to it. Because at least if there was a bit of an angle to it, then it's deflecting sort of out and away slightly and not straight back up into the rocket. Um, that's the thing that's interesting me most, I think, because if they can install that and it, and it's, it'll essentially also be a little bit of a water, you know, water cooled, I'm assuming means there's going to be water blasting out of it, similar sort of deluge kind of idea, which would hopefully protect the rocket as well from the acoustics. But um, it remains to be seen how that fits together. It's a bit of a puzzle. There's pieces there everywhere. Um, but worst case scenario, is, they have to build a giant pyramid of concrete with a hole in the bottom of it with 
cooled steel plates that they're dumping water, deluging water into it, trying to both suppress the sound and as much of the damage as possible. In a I suspect the water will come out of it. I reckon it's, uh, it's yeah, yeah, a sensitive environment. Mm. Um, like this, this could get complicated and expensive. It's yeah. called rocket science for a reason. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the bigger yeah. questions then are what happens with the tower that they've built at 39A, which is basically standing right beside uh, the other NASA um, will not crew, let them use the it until they solve taken. their problems. Yeah, That's right. right. So, you know, there's a reason I think that the workers sort of stop progressing there. They're going to, whatever they're, whatever they're going to invent to solve this problem, it's going to have to be at 39A. Uh, as soon as possible before they're really going to... Uh, to me, it didn't probably didn't make a huge amount of sense building too much at 39A until they had at least done one of these test flights. And, you know, sure, sure as we've seen, water, some sort of suppression system, deflection system, some sort of <laughs> pad that's not just concrete is, is certainly needed. Um, so I want to talk about the implications then for using this system for play, going to other worlds. We look at, say, going to the moon. You know, they're already contracted to provide the human launch system, landing system for the Artemis mission, Artemis 3, which yeah. feels like it's forever, but it's going to come at us pretty quickly. And we've got all of this dust. We know that lunar dust is a big problem. That stuff can go into orbit. It can hang around mm. it can fly all the way around the moon and come back and bite you in the butt so is this the amount of exhaust i mean that this is going to put out is this a problem for landing people on the moon it's not a problem for artemis 3 because they have uh their spacecraft has engines up the top that fire sideways so mm. they've actually mm. moved the landing thrusters away from the bottom and that's a really good thing because it means that they can land uh on surfaces that would otherwise be impossible. But, you know, their plans to land on Mars, which of course are highly speculative, those still involve the main engines digging yeah. into the surface of Mars. And yeah, that's not Regardless happening is, anytime yeah. soon. Yeah, I mean, there's going to have to be a lot of changes to whichever vehicle is going to do this. Obviously, it needs legs for a start. You know, we're just looking at Starships without legs right yeah. now. The legs that they had when they did the t Starship test flights two years ago with these little dinky things at the bottom, that's not going to cut it for landing yeah. on something like the moon. It needs to be quite a wide stance, I imagine. And we've seen mock-ups of the HLS Starship with a wide stance. Um but yeah, as you say, uh, Scott, those uh, the top engines. It, you know, the question remains: What are those engines? <laughs> and we really haven't They're ever seen any super, information. Super Dracos, Mega mm. Dracos, something uh, running off the equivalent in you know methane and, and whatnot, ideally. Um, but it's it's going to be really interesting to see that design take shape as as we progress towards that. The big question in my mind's always been. How do they pick a landing site that is flat enough? And uh, and I'm, I'm assuming also they could launch with those top engines as well. So you're not necessarily blasting the uh, six engines. Right, you'll lift yourself off and then, you know, and then once you're your far enough engines. away, light up the main engines. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. say, how do you pick a landing site that's flat enough? I don't know. I've done it in Kerbal Space Program enough. <laughs> like, uh, I, I well, everything I've learned about rocketry, I learned in Kerbal Space Program. So Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, me too. We started that way. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, all right. So then I guess, I mean, we don't want to speculate, but let's speculate. Um, when do we see another launch of Starship? When do we see the next test, do you think? It's going to be more than two months. 
I think the FAA is going to take a minimum 90 days to do their investigation. They're required to investigate because of the debris. And if my FTS theory is right, then they're going to have to investigate that as well. And again, if it's an FTS issue, they can just put bigger, you know, bigger, uh, you know, systems on there. That's not a hard fix. Yeah, I mean, you've got a lot of things that you've got to tick off, really. Obviously, all the stage zero stuff has to be repaired. There's big questions to whether the big launch table on top, the big circle um, table that the Starship sits on, whether that's okay or whether they're going to have to replace it. I mean, they do have one at Florida that they could probably ship down and get installed quickly, but, you know, are there differences between the two designs? between 39A, where that's what they originally intended it for. To a degree, they've got a spare a spare tower, um, Mechazilla Tower, just sitting there up uh, with all its separate pieces waiting for something to be done. So, I mean, we're assuming at this point that the tower itself was okay. It's a big, sturdy-looking thing, so I think that that would probably be fine at this point. But then you've got um, all the tank repairs to do with the, with the vertical tanks. It is true that there's inner tanks. Maybe they're not so damaged as the outer shells, uh, but they got hit pretty hard, man. I, I, I've, I'm skeptical as to whether we'll see those being removed and Use replaced them for entirely. nitrogen rather than oxygen or methane. <laughs> Use it for mm. less dangerous stuff. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, right. I think there's going to be a lot of like legal stuff that's in their way. They're going to have to deal with the Army mm. Corps of Engineers who will be kind of mad that they did some excavations where they without <laughs> the permits. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think the, the FAA is going to do their thing. And I, I think just because it threw up a lot of debris and broke windows, you know, you're going to get people coming in with their you know, lawsuits trying to, you know, change the next one or prevent the next disaster. But, uh, you know, those all get, I, I don't think any of those will get in the way, but I still think it'll be like next year before we get the next launch. Or it could be maybe late in the year, but it's not going to be, you know, three, two, three months. So do you but, think the regula regulatory issues are longer than the technical issues to actually get the next version of Starship ready to fly? I think the the legal stuff will just... Uh, be blamed for the fact that the technical stuff takes a long time. <laughs> I mean, we saw that already. I mean, with even just the initial test flight, they were getting these delays from the FAA and then it was done. And then it was like six more months, eight more months before they actually took a crack at trying to fly. Yeah, look, the FAA gets a bad rap and, and uh, you know, it's like any government agency, really. They're slower than people would like to get things done, but they've got a very important job to do, as we saw here. I mean, that's a very important thing to try to figure out what's the real reality of what can potentially happen, what's the real damage that can be happened in all these scenarios. It's not an easy thing to answer when it's all unprecedented. This is the largest rocket, most powerful rocket to ever lift off. It's got 7,000... At full thrust, and we don't know how much thrust it had at liftoff because maybe there were three engines down, maybe they weren't firing at 100%, but at full thrust, it's supposed to be roughly 7,600 tonnes of force. So it's, it's a huge 7,500-tonne 7, 7 fiery jackhammer going straight down <laughs> into the pad. Now, it's hard to sort of see what sort of concrete could really withstand that, and and we found out. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, yes, I mean, we were all that hoping one. that they were No, that's right. We were all hoping that it would be successful. Unfortunately, it wasn't. But, uh, you know, we're armchair rocket scientists here with no... <laughs> I've got no qualifications to make such a statement, but we were all fingers crossed that it would that it would hold out. But, yes, I mean, the whole community's been saying for years now whether there should be a deluge and, uh, you know, flame diverter and all that sort of stuff. 
that argument has been, uh, you know, argued and it's won all, by reality. Yeah. <laughs> it's been <laughs> answered. Right. Uh, awesome. Well, Scott and Marcus, I don't want to take any more of your time, but it was an absolute pleasure to do this debrief with you guys. Hey, um, pleasure. And it sort of saved me having to do some homework, and now I've been able to get you guys to do it for me. So now I'll be able to incorporate this in when I do my next uh, news update. I'll just be able to uh, uh, just sort of repeat the stuff that you taught me and, uh, and I'll go from there. So um, if if it's if there's any possible way that people don't know who you are, uh, Scott, where can people find out more of your work? You could just Google Scott Manley. That's the easiest way. <laughs> Right. Just make sure awesome. you have a safe search on. You don't safe want to search. see any on or yeah. off. Which should it be on? Because there is a there apparently is another Scott Manley in history. All right, uh, <laughs> the name Marcus. like that. Yeah, if people so, want to find out thing. more, where should they go? <laughs> same thing, search really. For, yeah, Marcus just has, YouTube and Twitter. Yeah. Safe search is fine either way. Yeah, Marcus House yeah. should either return the YouTube channel or the Twitter Twitter feed. We've got uh, reasonable following there now. So yeah, same thing. Awesome. Uh, always appreciate it. Love. Uh, Love communicating to the new the new fans of this thing because there's so many people that aren't necessarily switched onto this yet. You know, we, it was very popular two years ago when they're doing the test flights, but yeah. um, we're always trying to engage. You know, if 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 you know people that haven't heard of this stuff, even Falcon Nine landings, right? There's so many people I talk to here, no idea well, that wait, any of this they stuff land even rockets. Yeah, they, it's <laughs> that's exactly right. They really do, yeah. they do that. You show them one of these Falcon Nine landings, and people lose their mind. It's like they've been doing this for. What is it? Six years? <laughs> Something Easily, like that? yeah. So, yeah. Thanks, guys. And I'm sure <laughs> no we'll worries. do this again. Fly safe. See ya. You can get even more space news on my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 60,000 people. I write every word. There are no ads, and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at university.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the University Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash podcast or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent and keeps ads at a bare minimum. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to Jay Dennis, David Giltonen, Modso, George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verbioff, Andrew M. Gross, and Josh Schultz, who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.